If you would turn in your Bibles again, please, as we come now to God's Word uh, to to 1 Samuel chapter 15, it would be really helpful uh, to me as we we go through this this passage. And just before we do so, let's just pray for a moment and ask God to to bless his Word. Father, as we we come now to your Word, I pray that you would speak um, to each of us individually. Help us to be honest and open before you. Challenge us from your word. May we be willing to face up to the responsibility that we have as followers of you. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Now I gather you've been travelling through the um, book of 1 Samuel over the, over the last uh, number of uh, weeks, if possibly even months. And so we're here this evening in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And when you read this chapter, you, know, you could be forgiven for thinking that you are witnessing modern-day events, for they have an uncanny resemblance to the murk of present-day politics uh, and secular dramas. There's the crime, of course, perhaps today we call it a, a misdemeanor, followed by that toxic cocktail of denials, the blame game, excuses, leading eventually to heavily qualified statements of repentance prompted by the drip feed of evidence from hidden cameras, text messages, in this case, three searing questions from Samuel, and with an overarching quest of image protection. Not forgetting, of course, the special inquiry, which inevitably gets set up to try and uncover the truth. But here in 1 Samuel 15, there is no fear of bias. This is a judicial inquiry with God, the righteous judge, presiding, and his verdict is final. In fact, this this story is a wake-up call to us all. The background, as you know, has been rumbling on for a number of chapters, in fact, probably for the whole book of Samuel, but the action gathers momentum in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The basic problem is Israel's quest for a king. Now, it's not the request itself, After all, God would eventually give them the Davidic dynasty. Moses had anticipated the time when there would be a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The problem, you see, was their motive. They didn't want to rely on the word of God mediated through the prophets and judges and truly learn to obey that word. By the request for a king, they were really turning away from God himself. And it started so well in chapters 9 and 10. We are told of Saul's tall stature, his good looks, his admirable humility, his God-given authority. In chapter 11, we were were told of how he courageously rescued the city of Jabesh from the, the Ammonites and showed remarkable restraint in the use of royal power. But it wasn't long before he began to treat the Lord God as a talisman, you know, something that's a magical type of pointer guiding him as to what he should do, rather than as a person who was to be reverenced and obeyed. And now when we come to chapter 13, we read it was actually Jonathan, his son, not Saul, that led the Israelite army into battle against the Philistines. And faced with the terror of the massive Philistine army and the imminent desertion of his troops, he takes it upon himself to offer a sacrifice to God rather than waiting for Samuel to come, even though only a high priest could offer a sacrifice. And just as Saul finishes, Samuel arrives, he criticizes his foolishness, 
and declares as a result of his impatience and disobedience, the kingdom is going to be taken away from his family and given to a man after God's own heart or after God's own choice. Samuel's reaction, well, it may seem harsh, but Saul's problem was that he didn't actually obey the Lord's command because he didn't really trust in the Lord. And then in chapter 14, we further read that it was only the, uh, the intervention of his men which actually keeps Saul from killing his son Jonathan, who had overruled a foolish oath that Saul had made that there should be no one that should eat anything of the spoils of the battle until the battle was over, even though his men were dying with hunger. So it's against that background of the, his sinful offering on the one hand and of his rash motives on the other that we come now to, to chapter 15, the subject of this evening. And the, the backdrop to this chapter is God's righteous judgment. The instruction from the Lord to Saul in verses 2 and 3 is clear and unequivocal. God says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, our first response to that might be to recoil at the Lord's command. You know, this instruction is simply horrific. The, the detail, unbelievably graphic. You know, how can this be the words of a God whose compassion is over all the earth as we read about in the Psalms? Does this not sound a bit like ethnic cleansing? But we need to understand the context, the context that this requires and appreciate that this is the faithful, unsanitized version of what happened a long time ago. You see, the Lord is punishing the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they first escaped out of Egypt. And we, we read about that in Exodus chapter 15 and chapter 17. And Moses remembers in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that it was a particularly mean attack. He recounts, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And for this, the Lord declared in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25 that Amalek was to be wiped out through a battle where Amalek is devoted to destruction. That's the term, a term which occurs actually eight times in this chapter. And we should also note that the descendants of, of, of Amalek are not suffering for their ancestors' sins. Rather, Samuel refers to the current generation of the Amalekites as sinners in verse 18 and announces Agag's war crimes as the basis for his execution in verse 33. Is not the Lord slow to anger when he gave them 300 years to repent? So the context it requires, but also the comfort it brings. And we need to understand that the Lord's vengeance is the just vengeance. It's the, the virtuous vengeance of a righteous God and to be praised. Moreover, it's precisely in God's vengeance that his people find comfort. The Lord does not forget how the enemies hated, they trampled, they crushed his people. And his message through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 35 verse 4 says, see, your God will come with vengeance. If he does not do that, what ultimate hope do we have? 
No vengeance on God's enemies means no deliverance for his people. And hence again the comfort that comes through Isaiah in 61 verse 2 where it says his people enjoy his favor, his enemies receive his vengeance. That is the bedrock of the prayers of God's suffering people that we read about in Revelation chapter 6. And for us today, we need to see that this is, this is God's judgment on sin. This is a picture awaiting the fate of all unbelievers and not just a bygone era. God is a righteous judge and cannot tolerate sin. And then secondly, we come to the central theme of this chapter, partial disobedience. Samuel, he strikes the keynote to Saul in verse 1. He says, listen now to the message from the Lord. You see, it's all about hearing and obeying. In fact, that verbal root of listen, hearing, obeying, it occurs, I think, around eight times in this chapter. That is the covenant king's first priority, to submit to the Lord's will and to the Lord's word. Saul was to listen to it and to obey it in full. But the telling verse of the Lord's assessment of Saul is in verse 11. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. If we hear the, the testimony of this chapter, we must accept the Lord's assessment of Saul. And Samuel did hear it, but he did not accept it. For in verse 11 we read, Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Well, with whom or what was Saul angry? We're not told. The reasons may have been complex. They might have included Saul's sin, the challenge to God's sovereignty, the fate now of Israel, what was going to happen to Israel. And then, of course, there was the personal cost to Samuel's ministry. Here is the same Lord who first had to, to win him over to the, the whole idea of monarchy in chapter 8 and following, who now flatly announces that he's, he's cancelling it and declares Samuel's life's work worthless. Well, at least that's how at first sight it appears to Samuel. And of course, he's angry. But Samuel's evaluation of Saul's actions in verses 22 and 23 is blunt and uncompromising. First of all, there's the question, which in essence is a rhetorical question. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Then the assertion in the second half of verse 22, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, the superiority of obedience over sacrifice is so clear and echoed again and again in prophetic contexts such as the book of Amos and Micah. There is no substitute for obedience. That is the only thing that brings pleasure to God. And then in verse 23, we see the comparison. And Samuel's comparison of disobedience here is crucial. Disobedience or rebellion is a sin equal to divination to witchcraft, which Deuteronomy unconditionally condemns. And the sin of presumption or arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Why? Because rebellion and arrogance, they deny the Lord's authority. One translation of the Bible puts the verse like this. It says, in sacrifices, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animals, whereas in obedience... He offers his own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. 
And then finally the condemnation. Verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Partial obedience is not enough. Partial obedience equals disobedience. And disobedience equals condemnation in God's eyes. But it doesn't stop there because these verses also show us insincere repentance. Insincere repentance. And Saul's opening greeting to Samuel in verse 13 is even upbeat. He says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But that is a lie. His claim directly contradicts the Lord's previous disclosure to Samuel in verse 11, as if God could be deceived or fobbed off by partial obedience. Moreover, the narrator in verse 9 tells us that they had kept the best of the animals quite deliberately. The lie really betrays the fact that by this time, Saul is thinking without reference to an all-knowing God. He's thinking more like a politician and a pagan. And then in verse 14 comes the first of threes of the, the first of Samuel's three penetrating questions. What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And response, verse 15, Saul tries, first of all, to justify his partial obedience. The people, he says, had spared the good livestock to sacrifice to the Lord, but there was compliance. The rest, they had totally destroyed. Samuel's second question then comes in verse 19. He says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Now there's a change of tactics. You see, Saul goes for the blame game. In verse 20, he, he asserts his obedience. I, I, I did obey the Lord. He has brought Agag home alive, perhaps as some sort of trophy, and he has totally destroyed Amalek. But... The people took of the spoil of the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. And there's nothing like a little religious patter, you see, to, to pull the wood over some people's eyes in verses 20 and 21 in order to sacrifice them to the Lord in Gilgal. But not Samuel, as we see from his third really climactic question in verse 22, when he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? There is no substitute, as we've just seen, on the, and on the basis of this, he is rejected uh, as being king. No substitute for obedience. And then there comes formal repentance in verse 24, but how do we know it's not for real? Well, because of what he says next. You know, after lying and the blame game, he now goes for excuses. He acted because he was afraid of the people. Yes, I, I did, he said, but I was under a lot of pressure. Let, let's forgive Samuel. Let's, let's move on. He simply will not face his own responsibility. He cannot set the terms of his own forgiveness. But Samuel sees this clearly and repeats his word of judgment in verse 26. He says, I will not go back with you. Didn't you hear me? He seems to be saying, don't you realize how serious sin is? And in verses 27 to 29, they, they reinforce the finality of Saul's rejection. And a catching the, 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 the hold of, of Samuel's robe signified an entreaty or, or supplication. Its unexpected tearing also provides a parable. So the Lord had torn the kingdom from Saul 
in verse 28. His kingdom had been given to a neighbor who will be better than Saul, though that must refer to obedience to the Lord's command. And the finality of this decision is endorsed by Samuel's reference to the unchanging nature of God in verse 29 as one who does not lie or change his mind. Saul, he once again goes for formal repentance in verses 30 and 31, but we see this time it's only to salvage his own reputation. He he considers it more important to be honored by the elders of Israel than the God of Israel. Samuel accompanied Saul, verse 31, in order to put Agag to death and carry out the Lord's command that Saul had not done. It was not to save the face for Saul. But perhaps the most telling proof that his repentance was insincere was the the lack of evidence of a changed life. Yes, his kingdom is rejected, but this was perhaps Saul's finest opportunity to show genuine repentance and live in obedience to the Lord from this point on. But sadly, the following chapters show us that Saul did not do so. And chapter 15 ends in verses 34 and 35 with sorrowful rejection. Yes, there will be physical isolation. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But more importantly was a spiritual isolation. The Lord's communion with Saul as king through the prophet Samuel was broken. No more direction for Saul from the Lord's word. No more counsel. No more commands. No more encouragement. Without the Lord's prophet, Saul is without the Lord's word. An unbearable silence. But there's nothing harsh, nothing bitter or cold about this isolation. On the contrary, the text actually in verse 35, it it really breathes out the prophetic grief Samuel mourned and divine sorrow the Lord regretted. So how can we and how must we apply these verses to our lives? Well, first of all, I would suggest to you that we need to see sin for what it is. Sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. Not listening to the Lord's voice. It's not misunderstanding, but it's in the same category as sheer pagan idolatry. Uh, at a most basic level, you know, this story is one of rejection on the basis of partial obedience, but it's actually more complicated, more complex than that, because Samuel's subsequent meeting with Saul, it gave Saul the opportunity to reform, to correct his actions. Instead, what does he do? He offers excuses, blaming others and seeking to protect his own image. And you know, is it any different today? We excuse ourselves on the basis of partial obedience or by the fact that we haven't sinned in other ways. You know, okay, I I may not game into the night, but at least I'm not watching porn. I got angry with him in church, but at least I was in church. I admit I did it, but everybody was doing it. Purchasing insufficient computer licenses for the church saved money. It seemed a sensible thing to do. And after all, I was doing it for God. I was holding a worship service in Gilgal. God is not fooled. In his eyes, partial obedience equals disobedience. Every one of us has to answer in a court of law, and so with God. Taking a few shortcuts doesn't make sense and it doesn't wash 
with God either. He doesn't need us to break his laws in order for his will to be done. It looks as if Samuel is truly repentant. He speaks the right words. He says, I have sinned, verse 24, but his repentance is not real. He doesn't see the seriousness of his sin. He is more concerned about his own reputation and there's no ultimate proof of a changed life. Sin is rebellion, but also sin is arrogance. You arrogant pride driven by self-will and self-promotion. For Saul, it even reached a point in verse 12 when we read, he, he set up a monument in his own honor. We need at all times to those haunting words of Samuel before us in verse 17, where he says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. When Saul thought he was a nobody, God thought he was a somebody. Now that he thinks he's a somebody, he is, in fact, a nobody. Everything that Saul is, he is because of God's goodness. But Saul thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he deserves honor. Now he is ready to, to lie to God's prophet and never truly repent. And how strikingly similar again are the external pressures which face us today. For image is such a big thing in this world. You know, social media screams at us that we all like to be liked. If you don't believe me, well, just check your own daily screen time. You know, chic, it carries clout. Possessions, they speak power. Pleasure is something I, I not only need, but I, actually I, I deserve. But God's views of things are different. He looks deeper. His chief criterion for picking people for a special purpose is, are you willing to do my will? To be a person after God's own heart is to be a person after God's own will. Do you want to be truly great? Then you must become a servant of all. You need to see sin for what it is, rebellion and arrogance. You need to face up to your guilt and responsibility, no more excuses. And genuine repentance needs to be demonstrated by a submission to his will and a changed life, seeing sin for what it is. But then also, we need to see God for who he is, for God for who he is. Samuel describes God in terms of the consistency of his character. The glory of Israel in verse 29. That's actually the only place in the Bible that this text occurs. It speaks of God's eminence and his enduring nature. Unlike a human being, he is true to his character. He, he doesn't change his mind. He's true to his word. He doesn't lie. Our God is always holy. Our just God is always just. Our loving God is always loving. Our faithful God always keeps his word. And yet, in verse 11, we read, God regretted making Saul king. You know, how can he do this when he is a God who never changes his mind? Does, does that not appear contradictory? But you see, the key here is that Saul has changed. Saul has changed, not God. I regret that I've made Saul king. The verb regret which occurs about 29 times in the Old Testament, never seems to lose an emotional element of sorrow or regret. 
Saul has changed his character. He has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions, God says. And so God changes his actions in order to be consistent with his character. God does not change his mind. He's not capricious or moody. He is consistent. He is faithful. And God's consistency means that he judges those who are unrepentant. He always judges sin consistently. But his consistency means that he also saves those who are truly repentant and turn to him in mercy. For that is what he has promised. The consistency of his character, but also the perfection of his ways. God's sovereignty is never thwarted. The rejection of Saul does not mean the rejection of God's plan for his people. God will be faithful to his promises. And at verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 16, which I gather you're going to be turning to next week, we, we see God telling Samuel to appoint a new king, King David. And one day, David's greater son, Jesus, will rescue his people from their sins. And in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the cross, which is itself perfect obedience, as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, we see the Father's grief over sin and the perfection of his ways in a new light. So what does that mean for you here in, in Ravenhill at this time of, of crossroads? Well, there's no doubt that being without a minister, it always brings a, a restlessness and even an anxiety. But may I invite you to remember that we have a God who's never blinded, never blindsided. You know, he knew you were going to be in this position ever before you did. And he has a plan for you that will far exceed your expectations. If only, unlike Samuel, you're willing to accept it. That's why God told Samuel to get himself down in chapter, in chapter 16, verse 1, get himself down to Jesse the Bethlehemite's place, a serving lad, has just qualified to become king. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I would say to you this evening, keep on serving. It's a mark of true greatness. Keep on praying and seeking his will, for it's only as you cast yourselves on God can you hear his voice of instruction. It's only then can he reveal to you who is this man after his own heart, after his own will, that he has chosen to come among you. Remember his faithfulness to you over the last, is it 125 years? He knows the end from the beginning. All he asks is for your total obedience to his will and his trust and your trust in his ways. Amen.